Hey everyone, I'm Joe Chicarone. This is Built Not Born, episode 85, archived edition. Today's guest is Mark Ciccone. Mark Ciccone is a Vietnam veteran where he served a 12-month combat tour as an officer in the U.S. Army Rangers. During his tour in Vietnam, Mark led infantry units through heavy jungle combat. Mark shares remarkable stories of the Tet Offensive, what it was like walking point in the jungle. Mark tells some fascinating stories about some rescue missions. Mark describes in detail what he felt the day President Kennedy was assassinated while he was on the football field playing for Temple University. Mark and a friend started the first surfing supply company on the East Coast Surfer Supplies in Ocean City, New Jersey. Mark finishes up telling some amazing stories, how he became the pilot to the rich and famous. Mark's flown everyone from President Gerald Ford, Mick Jagger, the Rolling Stones, Phil Collins, and he was even the helicopter pilot for the ABC TV show Dirty Sexy Money, where he got to hang and fly with Donald Sutherland. It is a fun conversation with one of my favorite people on the planet. So please enjoy my conversation with Vietnam veteran, entrepreneur, family man, and a great friend, Mark Ciccone. And remember, life is built, not born. Mark Ciccone, welcome to the show. Thank you. Gracias, (laughs) senor. You look good. You lying son of a bitch. <laughs> I look like I died and was dug up again. <laughs> I look like I've been dead and dug up six months later. That's what I look like. <laughs> Not so good. But eh, what are you going to do? For the listeners who may not be familiar with your work, who are you and what do you do? Recently at 75, I retired from my last corporate flying job where I was the chief pilot for the last 20 years for a large construction and casino operation. Where did you grow up? Started out in Olney, Pennsylvania. It was a little gritty in those days, in the early 50s. And my dad was a scientist for the United States government. Smart guy, graduated number one from his high school in South Philly, top of his class at Penn. And he said, you know what? I got to get these kids out of this area. And we moved us out into the country. And I grew up in Langhorne, Pennsylvania, when it was very rural Mm. in the old days. What was it like around the dinner table back when you say 10 years old? What, What did that look like? Mayhem. (laughs) so we ate strictly at five o'clock every day my dad came home from the frankfurt arsenal he had a routine we were we had free reign the kids we were gone all day nobody knew where we were and we were all at the dinner table at five o'clock and we were encouraged to speak our mind and and our own peace and we listened to my dad and my mom was a stay-at-home mom but she was a super intelligent human being and very well read and a kind person so it was really terrific Uh, unlike today nobody seems to get together around the dinner table anymore Mm -hmm. Uh, it's definitely something that lost in the modern world certainly what's the most powerful memory of your childhood Most powerful memory, I have to say, I was really affected by my grandfather's passing. I was nine years old. That was 1954. I had a heart attack while visiting us at at our house. And he was a doctor who smoked three packs of cigarettes a day. 
had a known heart condition from when he grew up in Italy with rheumatic fever because they were underfed in Sicily. And so that was a big one. And that stayed with me for years and years. I still don't like the smell of flowers because of the funeral. Moving on rapidly from that was athletics. It's all I ever was really interested from the time I was 10 till graduating from high school. So where'd you go to college? I started out at Temple playing football, Temple University in 1964, actually 63. As a matter of fact, the last game I played in my freshman year was against the Naval Academy Plebes. And you may remember the date. It was November 22nd, 1963. Wow. We were on the sidelines because there's nobody in the stands, a few family members because it's a freshman game. Nobody cared. And there was a, you could see a little rumbling in the stands, little murmurs. And then somebody must have walked across the track, the cinder track that separated the field from the stands and mentioned something to a coach or something that it pretty soon we the president was shot and all the players heard. It was almost the end of the game when we had heard that. And of course, my dad was at the game. He never missed a, anything I ever played in. And it was a Friday. So I was going home the Langhorn with him and we're driving along in our little 63 Ford Falcon. And um, we're listening to the radio and say, oh, the Kennedy got shot. But we never assumed that he was going to die. We just, oh, he got shot in the arm, the elbow, the leg. And it came across on our ride home that he was dead. It was... It was searing in the memory, that's for sure. I'll never forget that day in that game because of that. What was it like immediately after that? It was very tantamount to a 9-11. Very, the, the country was devastated, in denial, couldn't believe it. Of course, 9-11 was more unifying because everyone joined together. We had a common enemy in 63 when Kennedy was shot. No one knew exactly the perpetrator. I'm not sure they ever found out the whole truth, but it was very similar to 9-11. Everyone remembered where they were, what they were doing, and the sadness that followed. You graduate Temple, correct? No, what happened was, oddly enough, on that day, I went out for a, a little button hook. If you know what a button hook, I was playing wide receiver, and two big linebackers hit me in the back at the same time. And did a lot of damage to my my lower spine. I never played football again. That was the end of my football career. And I got home with my dad months later after the year was over. And I didn't, really didn't want to go back to a city school. I wasn't going to be playing ball. And I wasn't with those guys all the time. My dad graduated from University of Pennsylvania. One of his best buddies was the Dean of Academic Affairs at a school that nobody out here ever heard of, SIU, Southern Illinois University, the Salukis. So they stuck me on a train that August and sent me out to SIU. And uh, I really enjoyed it. In fact, I enjoyed it too much. <laughs> Put a year in out at SIU. So with uh, a couple of hundred credits under my belt through Temple and SIU, I came home that summer and uh, didn't go back. And we'll go into that later. So you you come home from SIU. What happens? Where do you go? Home from SIU. And I realized that just I'm not doing great at school. I'm, not, I'm clowning around and having a great time. Not really studying like I should have. Didn't flunk out or anything, but it really wasn't my thing. So I was going to take a year off. Now, it's now 1964, 65. And I got involved in the summer in surfing and became a really accomplished surfer, opened up a surf shop. I helped uh, a buddy of mine who had the, the, the money and the wherewithal. 
And we started the first surf shop on the East Coast, Surfer Supplies, down there in Ocean City, New Jersey. And I stayed there all summer, into the fall, into the winter. And I was never going to do anything again in my life except be a surfer. But the winter came and in the surfing, we were, the weather wasn't conducive to being out in the water all the time. And I came back home. It was at my mom and dad's and with no real job, no assignment to another school. And my dad was a little nervous about spending any more money if I wasn't going to stay and, and, and work hard. A couple of buddies on Street Road, I'll never forget it, in, in, in Feasterville, PA, I'm pulling up and they were pulling down the other way. And I said, hey, what are you guys doing? I said, nothing. What are you doing? I said, I think I'm going to go join the army. <laughs> so, what? All, they parked their car right there. And all three of us went down to 401 North Broad Street in Philly and, and joined the army. You joined the army. Take us from there. Well, that, there's this a long story coming up. You'll have to stop me a couple of times. We went down to 401 North Broad and raised our hand call our families and said, but well, we never even went back home again to get clothes or anything. And we just got on the train right from there. And the next stop was Fort Gordon, Georgia, down in where they play the Masters in Augusta. Had no idea where or what Augusta was. I'd never heard of the Masters at that point in my life. I wasn't a golfer. And ended up doing eight weeks of basic training in the Army at, at Fort Gordon, Georgia. And of course, the three of us who joined together, we were all college guys. And uh, we took all the batteries to test. While I'm in, in basic training, I'm on KP duty for 15 hours one time. It's, it's really miserable and I'm cutting potatoes and slinging hash. And I see this Corvette pull up outside of the barracks and it gets in the number one parking spot. And a guy gets out, really starts, fatigues, looking great, comes in and he jumps right in the front of the line and gets his chow. I said to the mess sergeant, who the hell is this guy? And they said, oh, that's an officer. He's a lieutenant. He gets to do whatever he wants and he drives the Corvette. I, so that must have gone in my memory bank someplace. So a couple of weeks later, never forget it, Captain Lynch calls the three of us into his office. We're just basic trainees, ready to graduate. And we're standing in attention. He says, oh, are you three jerks? He said, uh, you must be college boys, huh? And we all said, yes, sir, yes, sir, and yes, sir. Because you, you maxed your IQ test or whatever it is in the Army that says you can walk and chew gum at the same time. So we passed the test. He said, you all qualify for officer candidate school. And I remembered officer it, that guy in the Corvette with the starch fatigues, I said, yeah, I want to do that. <laughs> I'll be glad to do that. And he said, well, which one do you want? You can go to Signal Corps, Armor, Infantry. So I said, oh, give me infantry. Sounded the easiest. So off I went a few months later to uh, Infantry Officer Candidate School at Fort Benning, Georgia. You get there? What's it like? I get there in August of 66. And it's 100 degrees in Georgia. And me being a wise guy and always a smile on my face, I probably low crawled in that six months, probably 100 miles. Never got to eat a regular meal because they always threw me out of the mess hall because you had to eat square meals and sit on the edge of your seat and not look straight ahead. And I was always laughing and joking around. And it was six months of rigorous training and academic training as well. Maneuvers, firearms, all sorts of educational things that the Army likes to teach. And I graduated uh, with a commission, second lieutenant, in January of 67. I'm an officer, just like that guy with the Corvettes. So naturally, I went out to the local dealership and bought a Corvette. <laughs> what color? 
What kind? I had a red Corvette convertible, and uh, my two roommates, one had a blue one and one had a white one. We lived in a little apartment, never forget, called the Ansley Apartments in right off the base in Fort Benning, Georgia. So you guys are all balling out. Three officers with three Corvettes in Fort Sitting Benning, Georgia. There, we all had different jobs. They, they assigned me. They took the top 5% of the graduates of the officer candidate school and offered them to remain in the program as TAC officers, tactical officers, which is the same thing as a drill instructor is to enlisted men. So I took a job and I, I got a platoon of officer candidates and I was there a number of months. That was a great time. I really enjoyed that, getting to know the guys and working with them. It was hard for me to try to be a tough guy because it's not in my nature, but I was stern and I produced a pretty good platoon. But the whole time I was trying to get to, to Vietnam, I was volunteering for Vietnam continually. I kept writing letters to OPO, that's officer personnel in, in Washington, D.C. wanted to test what I'd been learned, what, what I learned. And I was fortunate enough eventually to get orders for Vietnam with a stop at Ranger School right there at Fort Benning. I went you know, to the nine-week program at uh, Fort Benning, Georgia, on my way to Vietnam. All right. So how do you go from attack officer to Ranger School? What brought that about? My request to the Colonel Bursnack. Uh, yeah, that's right. I remember his name. And, and I kept going. He said, get the hell out of my, my office. I kept saying, look, I just I wanted to go to Airborne because the jump towers are right across from our barracks where the guys were learning to jump out of airplanes. I said, I wanted to go to Airborne, Ranger, and then Vietnam. The only problem with the Airborne School, I'm going to get a little technical here, is in those days, the only way you got an Airborne assignment to go to jump school was if you had an assignment to an Airborne unit afterwards. In other words, the 101st, the 82nd, or the 173rd. So I didn't have an assignment to any of those. So I got to go to ranger school, but did not get to go to jump school, which my son-in-law, who's a paratrooper, reminds me of every day. <laughs> but he didn't go to ranger school, so I get him on that one. What was the thing that got you in ranger school? How did that happen? I wanted to get out of being an attack officer. After a while, after a few months to be an attack officer, I suppose it's like being a teacher or something. It's and and Vietnam was right there. And of course, with my personality, I you know I wanted to get out of being stateside. And I was thinking of the army as a career, and I knew it was a merit badge you had to have anyway. And then you want to test all these skills that you learn. But I also wanted everybody wanted. And every good infantry officer at that point wanted to go to ranger school. So I was fortunate. I bugged the colonel enough that one day they said, tomorrow morning at five o'clock, be out at Camp Darby. You're you're going to ranger school. So they that's how I got in. And I was there the next day. No warning, no nothing. I was just there. So what was that like? You get to ranger well, school. <laughs> what's, what's that like? That's, that's, it's, a, it's an incredible program. It's divided up into nine weeks. The first three weeks is the physical training part at Camp Darby. Intense physical training only the SEALs know about or the Air Force special units and stuff. There's, it's very difficult. Capped off with, I can't remember, I think it was a 17-mile run to Camp Darby with your rifle and, and boots. I, I see nowadays when they make the run, they do it in sneakers, but we did it in a uniform with our rifle. Uh, and then the whole time it's being followed by a, a bunch of ambulances. <laughs> but if you didn't make the run, you didn't, you don't graduate from ranger school. So virtually everybody made it. And then you go into Camp Darby and you, you get to climb up the, the hundred foot pole and do the swing screaming ranger into the water. 
And then you move on to Dahlonega, Georgia, which is in the mountains in the northwestern portion of Georgia. And you go the mountain phase, which is all night patrolling. And I might add, in all these patrols, you never eat and you never sleep. So you go, you sometimes you'll go a week with it. You sleep standing up. You, it, it's hard to believe the positions you can fall asleep. But that's they're training you not only in mountain climbing, but in patrolling techniques and leadership and all the related subjects to that sort of thing. Now, once you graduate from the Dahlonega part, you went to Eglin Air Force Base in Florida for the three weeks jungle phase down there. What's that like? Well, that's a lot of critters and nasties. And I'll never forget. We were on a patrol one afternoon and I collected up all the canteens because one guy would go down to the water supply. So I collected up eight canteens and I sneaked down to this little sandy little stream, filling up the canteens with the water out of the stream. And I'm looking, there's these two big eyes looking at me, this cotton mouth snakes. I got back with just half the canteens full and the guys are all yelling at me. <laughs> what the hell did you? I said, go fill your own goddamn <laughs> And then something that impressed me and lasted with me, which I'll get to later in the story. But the guys from Fort Rucker, Alabama came down, students ready to graduate, flying the UEs, the UH-1. And they did uh, an insertion, picked us rangers up and when an extraction, excuse me, and then and they did an insertion with us. It was one of their graduation exercise in the helicopter school. And what they did is they bring tons of what's called pogey bait. And pogey bait, if you ask any military guys, candy and junk and slop. And they have bags of it in the helicopter. And they're passing it out to the eight guys in the back because they know the Rangers were gone. We all lost 20, 30. Some of the West Pointers that I went through lost 50 and 60 pounds by the time we got to down the Eglin Air Force Base. So it's a real neat tradition. That helicopter class always brings junk for that Ranger class. You're both ready to graduate and you're both. So we got to practice extraction and insertion in the helicopters, which was our introduction to air mobility. And they got to do the same thing. So I remember that years later when I went to flight school. So here you are, you're an officer. Now you're a ranger. Right. You graduate from there and, and I went back to Fort Benning to my headquarters company and straight to Vietnam. Okay. So you get the orders, you ship out the NAM. For a new infantry lieutenant and almost everything I've read and everything I've ever spoken to, there's very little personal fear involved. The frightening thing was going into a situation like that, worried that you would let your men down and not be able to do the job or make mistakes that hurt people. And we were new at it. We weren't seasoned. So it's a very real concern the whole time over on the plane. Never thought, never was not concerned. I wasn't married. I didn't have a girlfriend. There was nothing I had to worry about back home. So I wasn't worried particularly about my personal safety. I was worried about being able to do the job. Tell us about the story about when you landed, the helicopter brought you into your first unit. When I, you go to, you arrive in Vietnam, you go to reception station, it takes a couple of days, they give you a couple of shots and stuff, you're indoctrinated. You go down to 9th Division headquarters, which I was assigned to, and you go to a little academy where they refresh you about shooting your weapon. But in about a week's time, you're ready to go to your unit. My unit, I was, then the 9th Division is only down in the, the Mekong Delta. My unit was not there. Just a little headquarters group was there. So I got out of the academy down there after a couple of days. They said, go over to the airfield and 
talked to you're getting on a C-130 and you're going up to Bambi to it. I said, Bambi to it? Where the hell is Bambi to it? And that's up near Docto in the Central Highlands. And in November of 67, the 173rd Airborne got in at big time with the NVA, not, not Viet Cong, but the NVA regulars. And my unit in the 9th Division was tasked to go help them out. So I get on in the C-130, packed like sardines, land at this little airfield. I jump out of the C-130. There's a captain there. It meets me. He says, Lieutenant Ciccone. I said, yeah. He said, okay, get on that helicopter over there that's running. They're waiting for you. They flew me out to a fire support base. Fire support base is an advanced base that is – circled by security. It's out in the boonies and they're, they're artillery bases and they support the local boonie guys that are out there. So I go to the fire support base and I meet my Colonel, Lieutenant Colonel Lord Baldwin third. He was a lunatic, but I had heard about him. He said, what do you want to do, Lieutenant? What job do you want? And I said, sir, I want to be a platoon leader. That's what that's ingrained in you. That's, that's what you train for. He said, all right. Lieutenant Connolly was killed two days ago. You're taking his platoon, first platoon Bravo company. So I said, yes, sir. I about choked on my salt tablets at that point. But so the next morning, the helicopter takes me out and we're flying in circles. I'm in my bright green new uniforms. Everybody else have been there for months. It looks like their uniforms are gray and rotten off them, which they were. So we're circling the spot. I said, I don't see it. Where are you landing? I'm on the intercom with the pilots. And they said, they're blowing a landing zone for you first. And they had a C4, which is a plastic explosive. They're blowing stumps and trees away so they could lower the helicopter in. So the helicopter couldn't even get all the way to the ground. It was hovering about three feet. I jump off with my gear and, and we're in triple canopy jungle now. We're not down in the Delta where I came from. This is big time. And Sergeant Reyes, E7 Sergeant Reyes from Puerto Rico comes up to me and introduces himself. And the first thing I said is, Sergeant I said, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I'm going to follow you for a week, a month, as long as it takes until I know what's going on. And he said, sir, they're the best words I've ever heard from a lieutenant because <laughs> he didn't want me to get a bunch of people killed. And it, sure enough, he, he showed me the ropes for a few days and I was fine. And, and I was able to employ a lot of the new tactics that I had just learned in Ranger School. A lot of the platoon sergeants and, or the platoon sergeant and the squad leaders liked some of the stuff I was doing. So I had a good rapport right from the beginning because I didn't want to go in there being a know-it-all. And I didn't want to get shot in the back either. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, you basically went on a Vietnam listening tour. You went in and just asked questions. You observed that like you're not it's, trying to impose your will. It's exactly right. I thought that, that's what made Sergeant Reyes happy. I imagine it was a week before I even issued a suggestion or order. I wanted these guys had been there for months. I've been there for minutes. So I wanted to get again. Now, of course, I, I had some training that none of them had, too. So there was that. And hopefully an intellect that could pick up on, on what they were showing me. And I really paid attention. And this is a lesson that can be <laughs> brought forward for a lot of things in life. When you go into something cold, don't be brushing your teeth with gunpowder and shooting your mouth off. So I listened to Sergeant Reyes, my company commander as well, who acquiesced to, to my former leadership in the beginning. He said, no, that, there's nothing wrong with that, listening and paying attention. 
I'll tell you, the first order I issued, there was a CNC ship above us, a command and control helicopter with the colonel in it. And he was telling us to dig up all the NVA graves that we saw and count the bodies in it. The Vietnam War at that time was big on body count. You're too young to remember, but that's everything was body count. This was the way they judged our progress because it wasn't a typical war where you gained ground, you kept it, you gained ground and kept it like in Europe or Korea, traditional war. You fight three days for a hill, give it up, helicopter away, and the bad guys would take it over again. So it was a strange war. They went by body count. So I told the guys, we got to dig up these graves. And they're all looking at me like I'm crazy. So the first spade that went in the ground, you cannot believe the, the, the horror, the smell, like nothing you've ever. So I said, guys, that's enough of that. General can't see or the colonel can't see. He can't see through the triple canopy jungle. I said, machete one, bravo six. You know, we got six here and we got eight over there and we got six more here. And then colonel saying, good job, lieutenant, keep it up. And we were just making it up. We were sitting there eating our lunch. <laughs> <laughs> and the guys, get, there was a lot of respect. It was a ridiculous order. And so the guys knew I wasn't going to be chicken shit. So that was the first order I remember was a negative order. We're not going to do what they're telling us to do. Now, I didn't disobey orders the whole time I was there, obviously. But that was a silly order. You know, that reminds me of in that great miniseries from Ambrose and uh, Steven Spielberg, Band of Brothers. Oh, the best ever. Yeah, my, my, my favorite miniseries ever. There was one of the last episodes of Captain Winters. I guess he was Major Winters at the time. Right. Uh, at the very end, they're doing these almost meaningless raids across the river where the Nazis are. And they went one time, they tried to, I think they were, they were trying to kidnap uh, someone to, to get information that was just basically right. not needed. And they, they did it one night and someone got killed and they gave the same order the second night to go. Great job last night. Do it again. And Winter said the same thing. The, the colonel's not here. He has no idea they woke up the next day, said did the mission and couldn't find anyone. In, in war, in, yeah, the, there's decisions made like that in history are based in cowardice, but certainly winners was not. He made a, a proper decision there. Definitely. You told the story in the past about the Tet Offensive, one of the one of the turning points in the war, and you have a pretty remarkable story there. Could you share that? Yeah, we were high. We were down in the Binson Rubber Plantation, below the Benson Rubber Plantation, which was below Bearcat, which was our base camp. And to give you some idea where that was, it was that Bearcat was a few miles below Benoit and Saigon. So we were just had been on routine operation where we were just waking up in the morning, seven o'clock. We got lifted off the ground literally by the ammo dump explosion, probably 40 kilometers away, 30 miles north when the, the, the VC blew up the ammo dump in Benoit, lifted off the ground. I said, holy shit, something's going on. And it wasn't. 20 minutes later that the colonel through the talk, the tactical operations center gave us the order to saddle up and go out to this clearing and get picked up by a couple of helicopters, my platoon, three helicopters. And they brought us back to Bearcut, re reissued our ammo, re-outfitted re us. And we air mobile into an area right near two field force headquarters in Saigon, where they, all the generals and the colonels lived that had staff jobs in in uh, Saigon at, at different headquarters. And they're all leaning out the window with their 45s plinking away at VC and they're not doing it. But 
They're under, so the generals, so the, all the staff generals and colonels, they're literally at their base office job, so to speak, and they're shooting right. out the window. They're under siege by the VC. So we we came in and neutralized that that attacking force and were joined by an outfit of the, the second of the 47, the second of the 47 mechanized part of our division, the ninth division. And by the afternoon, the bad guys had run out of ammo. They had no backup. In other words, they had one shot and then the Viet Cong had one shot and felt that if they did this attack, it would be joined by the citizenry and the regular forces of Vietnam, but it wasn't. It never materialized. Their support never materialized. Therefore, they were out of ammo by three o'clock in the afternoon. And the, they were trying to chew after they're killing our guys and they run out of there trying to surrender. And the tracks were just squashing them like bugs. They were just running them over. And they were completely annihilated. That attack on Saigon was over by the early evening. And except for Walter Cronkite coming on the national news and saying the Tet Offensive proves that we it's a stalemate and we shouldn't be there. That's when the whole country shifted. But to get back to my point, it was a great victory there at the, at, in Saigon and a two field headquarters, Sholan Chinese district, Benoit, where they were completely wiped out. They only had the one shot. They didn't have helicopters. They didn't have food resupply, no ammunition, no water. So they, as I said, they had one shot and that was it. And we decimated them. Hopefully some of those generals or colonels bought you a beer afterwards. <laughs> you would think, and being a, a love at that point, I can't remember if I was still Second lieutenant or first lieutenant. I don't remember getting down to me. <laughs> but I was always good. When we were based to the south, 20, 30 clicks south of Saigon, I always managed to seal the chaplain's jeep or somebody's to get into Saigon when I had some downtime. I took care of myself. I didn't wait for the generals to do it. One last question on the war before we move to civilian life. Can you speak to the camaraderie you build with the people in your unit? It's an intensity. I can liken it to if you ever played a serious varsity sport or or a pro sport, although they might be a little tainted with the money in the pro sports nowadays. But it's it's, and I don't want to equivocate sports with a battle, but there is a, a certain kinship that you with your teammates and these folks are teammates. And I lived with these guys and they depended on my decisions. I depended on them holding my back. For example, I'm going through, it was in that Central Highlands mission when, when I first was up there and we had to go through a picket, thicket of bamboo, maybe a click. It was taking us hours to get through this. And the guys walking point were kept going off the azimuth. And, and I was a perfection guy and I wanted to go. So I said, look, I'm going to walk point. I'm going to go up there and walk point. My machine gunner, big guy, Johnson, with a rope around the M60 machine gun was always right behind me, always stayed with me. So he was right on my hip. I walked up and I'm hacking through the jungle and it opened up into this tiny little path. And I look up and there's two beady little eyeballs looking at me and they're and gone sideways like this in a, a giant King Cobra snake. And I'm not a tall guy, but he was eyeball to eyeball about four feet away. And I just 
just moved. I reached back with my right hand and slapped Johnson and I moved a little bit this way. And all of a sudden, boop, a short burst from the M60 and cut the thing right in half. We measured, he was 10 feet long. Wow. And, and so what I'm saying is team teamwork. I didn't even have to say anything to Johnson. He must have saved my life five or six times over there. But it, the, the camaraderie is intense. Trouble is if you get... Two guys that don't like each other. The animosity can be intense. And of course, everybody's got a weapon, so you got to be careful with that. But 99% of the time, it was each man for the other guy. That incredible. Thanks for sharing. All that. for one, one for all, three musketeers. Looking back, if you were to think, what life lessons did you pull out of that that you used in your entrepreneurial life, your civilian life when you started doing businesses? There's a couple things, Joe. First of all, there's organization. Without being somewhat organized, you're not getting anywhere. And the army teaches you to be organized. You know, to accomplish Z, you got to go through the alphabet first to make sure. Now, there's twists and turns along the way. And of course, you're trained for that as well. Uh, attention to detail, which I never really was a proponent of until... I realized if you didn't do certain things, you got no result. So that's another thing the Army teaches you. Dependence on others. Big thing, being able to surround yourself with folks that are committed to the result. There, we all had a common theme. We wanted to survive. We didn't care about the political implications of the war. We only cared about getting each other home. That was our mission. And if you apply it to business, you first of all, you close your eyes and what am I trying to get out of this? What is my ultimate goal? And then you start building blocks to make that possible. And I think not consciously, never consciously that I said, oh, the army's told, but it was just a way of life that I, that I applied. And what? Not giving up easy. There's another thing in the Army Ranger School. You, you listen. We would go two days to, to meet this helicopter, theoretically, a theoretical, or the partisans theoretically were going to be there, and we would get there, and they'd say, "Oh, the helicopter was shot down. You didn't get any food. You don't have any food. So now you got to figure it out and go out in the woods and kill something or trap a snake, whatever." So there's going to be things along the way. There's going to be roadblocks. The coin of phrase. That, that you just have to overcome. So don't give up. These are things that the, and guess what? I, this goes all the way back to my varsity experience in high school playing football for a very successful coach that went on to the pros, the Cleveland Browns, and, and the discipline that those coaches instilled in me. So I attribute, actually, some of my Army success was based on my discipline learned in athletics. What was it like when you left Vietnam, when you got on the helicopter and left Nam and re-entered well, civilian life? First of all, you, you can't wait to leave for a myriad of reasons too far to go into, but all you could imagine. Excuse me, how long were you over there for? The total time? In, in 12 months, exactly. Okay, wow. So at the 12-month mark, you leave. Tell me, what's that? Walk us through that. Well, that's what I said. You can't wait to the date. Of course, I was out of the field. Oh, can I digress for a second here and tell a little story in the background? Oh, you go. <laughs> so I have two weeks to go and I'm back in base camp 
And I'm basically just being a pain in the ass. The colonel saying, oh, you again, I'm, I'm done. I was a headquarters company commander at that point, which meant I was taking care of the chow and water and getting the place cleaned up for the for battalion headquarters. It was a, a do nothing job, a, a responsible, necessary job. But then again, it was for me while I was a short timer waiting to go home. And they come up to me, the colonel come up, says, Mark, I'm sorry. He said, can you do this for me? I said, sure, Colonel, what is it? He said, we've got an Arvin company. This is a company, three platoons of Arvin, that's regular Vietnamese troops. And they're going to do an Eagle flight operation uh, inserted in a few LZs out in the plain of reeds, which was a Bay Area. And we need them to have an American company commander with a, a translator and a radio operator. And I said, Hey, boss, I got two weeks ago. He said, I don't have anybody else to ask. So I went out there <laughs> and we're on the pickup zone and Charlie Company's inserted first and it's a hot LZ. So I'm thinking we're going to have a hot LZ with this, with me, with a bunch of Arvins. I didn't know what I was going to do. Fortunately, when we were inserted, the bad guys had DD mouth. They left. But I'm trying to move this Arvin company through the, these swamps and these um, hedgerows. And my call sign at the time was Hotel Six because of the headquarters company commander. I was Hotel Six. And I got these guys moving, actually kept them going pretty well. And they wanted to put up tents at lunchtime and take a break. I said, Mer, we don't take breaks at lunchtime. We're, this is a war. So I kept them going. And all of a sudden, there's a, a general flying above us. And he calls me directly on the Horn Hotel 6. This is, I forget his call sign, but he was the division commander. He says, I want to talk to you. I said, OK. So he lands his helicopter in his hedgerow. And I'm, I had to walk through this water. The water was up to my chin. And I climb up the other side and I salute the, the general as he get out. It was General Davison who turned out to be the first black general in the United States Army. He was our division commander. And he said, Hotel Six, I just want to tell you, I don't know how you're doing it with these Arvins. You're doing a great job. And I wanted to land and shake your hand. So we did. And he got back in a helicopter and flew away. I never forgot it. And it took me all day to dry off. But I thought that was quite an honor. I was waiting for my medal. It never came. But anyway, that's two weeks ago, getting back to the original story. I come back and the colonel was very thankful. The operation was two days long. It was no issues. Charlie Company got into some contact, but we never did. Thank goodness. I don't know what I would have done with those guys if we were under fire. But we got back. We got extracted back. And so fortunately, I was away from my platoon and company in combat for a few months because I, I did some other special helicopter mission, which I didn't mention, but for a few months. So I didn't have that feeling like in Platoon when Charlie Sheen is pulled out and he's leaving and the music's playing and he's leaving his guys right in the jungle and you have mixed emotions. You're glad to get the hell out, but you hate leaving your guys. I was removed from that for a few months. I wasn't with my guys. A lot of them had changed and they went home before me. So it was a little easier for me to leave the headquarters environment. So I was glad. I was mostly happy. I didn't have any regrets at that point. So you leave Vietnam, you come back to the States. So where, where do you set up shop and what's your first move after that? 
I just want to digress for a minute. I'm going to tell you the, the the for a few months after I came out of the field and generally after a while, they pull officers out of the field in Vietnam to give you some staff uh, experience. It's unfortunately the enlisted men didn't get to. They had to stay in the field the whole year, but they uh, officers for career development. They gave you a chance to do something else. And I was on staff there in battalion for a little while and hated it. And this specialized mission came up. It was called Spy, Sky Spy. And when they needed an infantry officer to get in the back of one helicopter with these big crew serve starlight scopes and go around, they needed an infantry officer in charge. The pilots did the flying. I'm in the back. And at night, we would fly over the canals and below Saigon, blacked out, no lights on, looking for sandpans, sneaking up in the Saigon. That's how the Viet Cong got all the ammo and everything for the Tet Offensive up there. They found out on these canals at night. So we started this mission. And for flying night after night with these pilots, I got to know the pilots and they said, Mark, sign up for flight school. This is great. Let's go to flight school. So while I was over there in Vietnam, I did sign up for flight school and took the tests and all passed all the tests while I was in country. Then fast forward to Ideros, I, I, I leave Vietnam. I come home. I haven't got my orders for flight school. And they, when I land, have my two weeks leave, they send me to Fort Dix as company commander of a basic training outfit. After Vietnam, going to the company commander with a bunch of snot noses, whiners. At that point, the anti-war movement was huge. So no one wanted to be there. They were all draftees. And I didn't have orders for flight school. I said, you know what? I got out. I said, that's it. I had the opportunity to get out. And so I, I left the army and bought a new Corvette and headed straight for Fort Lauderdale. How did you wind up becoming a pilot? Here we go. So now I'm knocking around Fort Lauderdale and having a, having a ball down there. I'm 22 years old with my new Corvette and all the money I saved from Vietnam. Met some folks down there. Lived a half a block from the beach on Las Olas Boulevard. It was like dying and going to heaven after Vietnam. But I started to get homesick for back here in the Jersey Shore. That the sand was in my toes and my family. So I came back. And the helicopter thing was still in my mind. So I enrolled in on the GI Bill and fixed wing flight school. So I went up there to 3M Airport in Bristol, PA, and over the months got all my licenses, my private pilot, my commercial, my multi-engine license, my instrument license. And, and I thought I was going to get a career in the airlines eventually or something, start out low and as a flight instructor, work my way up as most guys do. But I saw this ad for the New Jersey National Guard that if you were already commissioned, you could join this commission program and go to flight school. So I went up to the National Guard. The, the unit was in Linden, New Jersey. And I went up there and saw all the guys. And they said, yeah, they signed me right up for, I joined the unit and I would go out with the pilots. I was still just an infantry officer, but it was an air cab unit. So they had an infantry platoon. So I was in charge of the infantry platoon until my flight orders came in. Now I had all this fixed wing experience. I knew how to fly so I could talk the lingo with the pilots. There were 40 pilots in the cab unit and they, I made good friends and they would take me out and let me fly the helicopter. So they're teaching me to fly the helicopters out of Linden all my buddies up there before I ever went to flight school. Eventually, my orders come for flight school. I go down and report to Fort Walters, Texas. I got assigned to the captain who was in charge of the flight unit. He only had one student. 
So I was one-on-one with the guy who's in charge of the whole unit. We went out the first day and they always do this. They said, what would you like to try first? The cyclic, the collective or the pedals? Because, you know, everybody's all over the place, almost crashing. I said, I'm going to try all three. And he looked at me like, oh, okay, wise guy. (laughs) So he gives me the controls of the little TH-55 helicopter. And it just stood right there. And I just hovered. And he went, he looked at me, he said, all right, asshole, you've done this before. (laughs) So I'll tell you what, this is going to make my life so much easier. We became friends. He gave, he, but he gave me pink slips every day. He was so hard on me. The other guys would hardly be able to do anything and they were getting satisfactories and I'm getting pink slip. I thought I'm going to flunk out if you keep giving me pink slips. You once told a story of you at the Jersey Shore, the planes going by with the, the banner ads. Uh, that was Fort Worlds, Texas. And we graduated from the small helicopters. Then you move up to Fort Rucker, Alabama for the next few months for the UH-1 and your instrument rating and uh, tactics and all that. And remember, I told you that when you graduate, you fly down to um, Eglin Air Force Base for those poor rangers that are graduating. Now you're graduating. So I was in that position. Now I'm sitting up front flying. You should see the crap I bought those guys because I knew I'd been through it, but I brought tons of stuff. Eventually we graduated. I graduated in seven, class 7232. So that was October 17th, 1972. And they came home. And my first job, other than the Army and running the surf shop, was summer job flying banners. Now, funny story there. I went down to the Paramount Air Service at Cape May County Airport, and I'd never flown. I had my fixed wing ratings, but I never had a tail dragger. That's the wheel in the back. And they're a lot more difficult to fly. And not fly, they fly the same, but when they're on the ground, they're really squirrely. Landing and taking off can be a real challenge with a tail dragger airplane. Never flew one in my life. So I went to the guy and he was an ex-army fixed wing pilot. And I introduced myself, said, I'm looking for a job. I don't have anything to do. He said, fine. He said, yeah. He said, how much time you have in tail draggers? I went, well, what are you looking for? He said, about 300 hours. I said, oh yeah, I got that. I got that in OV1s. I didn't have a minute in OV1s. So I went right from there up to Pit, Pitman, it was a little Pitman grass field. And they had three cubs there, which was the same type of tail dragger. And I said, you got to teach me how to fly this thing. So I stayed there. I went there two days in a row and, and flew the tail dragger. But I got like three and a half hours in it. And I went back down to Cape Bay and the guy, the, the pilot gave me my check ride in the tail dragger. And we got out. He said, oh, you were fine. He's a little rusty. I can, I haven't flown him in a while. <laughs> Like a little rusty. I never flew one in my life. <laughs> so it was pretty much on the job training that summer flying banners. And, and so that's where the story comes in. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it, it, that's the most, this probably is the most dangerous flying I've ever done is that banner towing business. So- Bring us to this time when someone gave you the nickname. I see you are an army, uh, literally a commissioned ranger officer with a year in Vietnam, heavy combat. Oh, yeah. Shot down a couple of times. So I I put the year in the summer in at, at... Never lost a banner, never missed a day. Did you know? And I worked for this guy, Andre Tomolino, who had a a wife who really ran the business. So one day I'm coming back from Ocean City with a banner all the way to Cape May. 
thunderstorm, brutal thunderstorm, and it's knocking me all over the place. And I'm down about 400 feet, and I got the banner going behind me, and I can hardly see. I'm looking straight down. There's no instruments in these things. So I see the airfield half mile ahead. So generally what you do when you get to the airfield and you're telling a banner, you take the banner over the banner boys who are on the, the kids that roll up the banners and roll them out and put them up and get them ready for you. So, and you drop it there, but the rain and everything was so intense. As soon as I got over clearing over the runway, I dropped the banner on the side and then went on to land. I went in inside and she had some mouthy remark about that day about dropping the banner early. I said, oh, I, I saved your banner. I could have dropped your banner in the woods or in the water 20 miles back, but I saved that banner and brought it all the way back. And so the line boys had to go over three, 400 yards and pick the thing up and roll it up. So fast forward a couple of years later, I'm up in the state building on Broad and Spring Garden doing something for the state of Pennsylvania. I'm in an elevator and she's in the elevator, recognize me. And she's with, there's 20 people in the elevator and she yells out the phrase. I think you remembered it. Did I tell you what it was? What did she say? She calls you chicken chicone. Chicken chicone. Oh yeah. You're chicken chicone. You're the one who dropped the banner at the end of the runway instead of on the, and they're all looking at me like, Oh my God, they, you disgusting human being. You, I don't even want to be in the elevator with yeah, yeah. some courage. I just, it was beyond words. I just considered the source. How did you go from that to your own helicopter business? At, at that point, while I was flying out the, the banners, I was also now I'm a full-fledged member of the New Jersey National Guard. And I'm flying uh, at night, weekends, what we call AFTPs, additional flight training periods. So that fall, when I was finished flying, there's no more beach in September. So I went up to the guard and that's when they started transitioning all their little old piston helicopters, a little H-23 Ravens and their big CH-34 helicopters transitioning the UH-1s, UEs. It's called man days. In other words, that the guard became my full-time job. I would work, I would go down the RADMAC in Corpus Christi, Texas. I'd airline down there and pick up UEs and bring them all the way back from Texas to the New Jersey National Guard. And I did that for a few months, bringing back these ones. At the same time, at Trenton, I qualified in the OH-6, which you folks, civilian, know as the Little Bird, the Special Forces, that all the guys sit on the side with all strapped in. So I was at a meeting one day uh, at Trenton with all, you know, about 100 pilots. And a pilot that I had gone to high school with, I didn't even know he was in the unit, came up to me and he said, hey, we started talking. And he said, out of all these pilots, I'm lucky enough to have gone to high school with this guy. He said, hey, I'm leaving my job flying this little helicopter down to Philly International with this outfit called Metro Flight. He said, you want you want the job? I'm going to Connecticut for another job. I said, yeah. So I, I called the guy up, took the check ride the next day. And that was my first job is a flying job. And that was in 74. I started flying. I flew for many companies. I flew for him for a few years, got checked out in their Learjet, flew the Learjet and eventually ended up with the company that owned the contract for Channel 6, Channel 3 and the Go Patrol. And I flew for this company. I did all sorts of work, charter work for him, burn flights for Chester Crozer. I did for a year, uh, Medivac. 
And then I volunteered to do the Go Patrol, the contract that they had. And I flew the Go, Go Patrol with them for a year. And the contractor started going bad. He wasn't paying his bills and he was going to lose the whole company. And I said to Walt McDonald, who was the, the contractee, I said, if I can figure out a way to get a helicopter, if I can figure out some way to buy one, would you just contract with me and we do the Go Patrol together? And he said, and I had, by the way, no idea how I was going to do this. And he said, yeah, let's do it because the contract is up next month. And, and I don't want to go with these people. They're not doing anything. They're not maintaining the helicopter. They're breaking all the rules. I said, cool, let me see what I can do. You basically became the personal pilot to the owner of the Philadelphia Eagles, Leonard Toes. Love to hear that story. I glossed over that when I mentioned medevac and charter. Part of the charter was a year stint flying Leonard Toes. And you have not experienced anything until you experience flying a helicopter for one. The man was extremely demanding and brusque, but wonderful guy. We would fly to Atlantic City. He'd always give me a $100 tip. And this is in the early 70s. A $100 tip was a lot. He'd give me a $100 tip and $100 to gamble with. Now, being the smart guy I was, I never even left the airport. I didn't go over to the casino. I bought with his $100, a $2 hot dog and a Coke and went home with $198 in my pocket. But he was too funny. He would say, Mark, land right up next to the, I said, the guys in there won't let me land today. They said, we can't land that close to the building anymore. Leonard didn't want to walk 30 yards. He wanted to land. I hear him on the phone saying to his driver, who was his assistant, Cancel all the Eagles tickets for these guys that work down here because they won't let me. <laughs> I used to fly his wife at the time, young cheerleader. He had a bunch of wives. So this one, that when I, Carolyn was her name, beautiful, nice kid. And every time I had to have a magnum of champagne, every time she'd pop it and drink just a very little bit and leave it there time after time. And these bottles were like $200 at the time. So I land her in 60th Street. She goes on her mission to go shopping or whatever. So I said to the guys in the hut, I said, she never drinks that champagne. Guys, go out and grab that champagne and pour yourself. So they're all in there drinking the champagne. She calls me on the phone and says, oh, I'm sending somebody over to pick up the champagne. <laughs> I said, Carolyn, Please don't tell your husband I screwed up big time and she got a kick out of him. She laughed. I said, you never come back. You just leave it. And I just thought I'd give it to the guy. She said, oh, don't worry about it. My, I thought my life flashed in front of me. I didn't know what he was going. Every time you flew Leonard, you had to have an unopened pack of Chesterfield regulars and an unopened bottle of Dewar scotch. And he would drink scotch on the way down. No wonder he lost all his money. Yeah, he's one of the great characters in Philadelphia. Oh, yeah. We used to land on his lawn in, out on the main line. I'll think of Radner. And I said, Leonard, we can't do this. We, we're going to get in trouble. We, I just land me on the goddamn lawn. I did land me on the lawn. So finally, they got an ordinance in Radner's the only township in the entire state of Pennsylvania that you can't land a helicopter because the neighbors got so pissed off at him landing on his lawn.
I'll tie two stories in. You once, you had your Screen Actors Guild card for a while, right? Oh, and, yeah, still do. Yeah. And then you were the helicopter for the one show, Dirty Sexy Money with- Dirty uh, Sexy Money, indeed. With, yep. and, and Keith Sutherland's dad, Donald Sutherland. Donald Sutherland. Yeah, it, it, like life imitates art. You did that in real life and you're doing that. Oh, yeah, they did the same thing. And it is a, a small aside. Donald, of course, wonderful guy, but a big- anti-war guy during the Vietnam War. And he was engaged, as a matter of fact, to Jane Fonda, my least favorite human being of all time. And Cirillo and I were the pilots. We're, we're hovering over Floyd Bennett Field and they're, they're doing the shot. And we had to keep doing it and keep doing it. We're up about 200 feet. And I, I looked in the back on the intercom and talking to, I said, Donald, you got two Vietnam veterans up here. <laughs> and he goes, oh my God, am I in trouble? <laughs> You shared a quote with him or something? Yeah, no, I did. I, 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 he was in a movie uh, called The Dirty Dozen. It was one of his first movies. And I don't know if you recall the, the, this busload of degenerate-looking, filthy, long-haired guys. They were all ex-prisoners, and they had been in training, and they hadn't cleaned. And they were going to get airborne trained at the 101st Division headquarters. The colonel came out with a silver helmet, and he had the band all there ready to play to be inspected by the alleged general that was on board. And so the, the major turned around on the bus and he said, who wants to be a general? And Donald Sutherland's character raises his hand. So he got, and he's walking up and down the ranks and he stinks and he's a mess. And he's looking at the different guys and he's looking at their rifles playing them. And he looks at this one guy and he says, where are you from, son? And the guy goes, Boise, Idaho. And he looks him dead in the eye and he says, Never heard of it. <laughs> and then the colonel got pissed because he knew it was fake. So anyway, I went into Donald when he was sitting there between takes. And I said, I got to tell you something, sir. He said, what's that? I said, you got the greatest line that I remember in all moviedom. And he said, really? What's that? I think he knew. And I went, never heard of it. And he said, let me tell you something, young man. He said, that jump-started my whole career, that line. So that was fun. That was a nice exchange with him. Touch on a couple things. You started the traffic helicopter service you'd see over in Philadelphia. I get the contract for Walt. I managed yeah. to, to get a helicopter. It was in place for years, but all of a sudden now it's my contract and Walt is contracting me directly. And he's he had 20-some AM and FM stations that he did from the back. It was the height of traffic radio helicopter it was the the time and it was the most important every station felt they had to have a live reporter in the air you're doing that for how many years my goodness if you count till it morphed into channel three like 12 13 years i, I had those contracts God. but they got um Walt was bought out by shadow traffic that was the big deal mm -hmm. and, and fortunately they kept me and then that's when you came into the picture. <laughs> that's but where you and I met. Absolutely. Yeah. At this point, I just have my contract. I own this helicopter. And the fellows from Shadow Traffic called me up one night and it was on a Friday night. And they said to me, you've done a great job for us in Philly. Can you do this in New York? And I didn't even hesitate. I said, absolutely. What do you need? They said, we need you to start Monday. <laughs> I said, start Monday with a, with a helicopter in New York. And they said, yeah. And I said, you know what I said? I said, okay. 
I had no clue what I was going to do. So I got, I had a guy, a couple of part-time guys that would fly for me when I was doing other stuff because now I was a busy guy. So I got them to fly. I borrowed my buddy. I had a rich buddy who was a trust fund guy who had his own jet ranger helicopter, but he didn't use it much. And he was always wasting all his money. I said, look, I'll give you X number of dollars a month for a few months to lease your helicopter. I need it up in New York. He said, yeah, come get it. I took that helicopter on Monday morning to Teterboro and I lived in the hangar lived. I, I had a station wagon. I backed my station wagon in the hangar and put a sleeping bag and a pillow in that station wagon and slept there for a month while I did uh, shadow traffic in New York with that helicopter until I could find a permanent guy to replace me. But the key there was I didn't say no. I didn't say, oh, man, or shit, that's going to be hard. I just lied and said, yeah, I'll be there. And guess what? I was and never missed a day. We, we went right on. I hired some nice kid from South America, did a fabulous job. And for a couple of years, we were up there and they eventually did the same thing. They said, can you do this in California? Where I was when I got that phone call. I was on a hunting trip in Colorado, an elk and mule deer hunting trip in the middle of the snow. And there was no cell phone coverage. Cell phone, cell phones weren't that very good at the time. And I worked my way down and I, I borrowed a four by four a runner and I went down into the, the town and there was a single light bulb over a pay phone. And this was like in nine o'clock at night. And I got a hold of a friend in California, in Van Nuys, California. And within an hour, worked out a deal with him, a multi-million dollar deal over a couple of years to provide a helicopter and five airplanes for me and and Jet Copters, Inc. And all I did to find him was look him up in the book. And of course, there was a real credibility problem. I said, you can check on me anywhere. But I said, I'm a good guy and and, and I'm, I'm, I'm true to my word. And we formed a wonderful relationship over the years. Wow. You know, this reminds me of uh, Seth Godin says, the way you win in Jeopardy is you squeeze the answer lever before you know the answer. Before. That's exactly right. And it looks like that is what you've done consistently, where you just, you've got to squeeze it before you know the answer and then make it uh, and roll with it as you go. That takes such courage. Yeah. And sometimes there's nothing you can do. Eventually, my traffic helicopter morphed into Channel 3, which I did successfully for a number of years. And as in the news business, it's very mercurial. A new news director was hired at Channel 3, who, by the way, only lasted six months. But he was from the West Coast and he had a helicopter operator friend and he threw me out to bring this new guy in. And that was the end of my Channel 3 contract. And there was there's no button I could push to save that. It, it, it was stacked against me. What are you working on now? What's got your attention? Trying to buy a house in Florida. That's number one. Number two is keeping all three of my kids and five grandchildren out of jail. (laughs) They're all terrific, wonderful folks, but life is awful nowadays. You just never know. So protecting my family. I I flew 
corporate till I was 75. I was the last man standing. The only reason I left is the insurance company got a hold of my company said, we're just looking at this pilot questionnaire that Mark, he's 75. <laughs> he's going to drop dead in the cockpit. <laughs> we, <laughs> we can't. They said, oh, we fly two pilots now. We have a youngster flying with him. And they said, that doesn't matter. He's liable to drop dead on the controls. <laughs> and if the kid can't throw him off the top. And, and I had a laugh. So they said to me, they didn't want an age discrimination suit. So he said, Mark, how would you think about retiring? I said, eh, it's time. I was, guess what? I was, we bought the Hard Rock Hotel, my company, and I was getting calls at two o'clock in the morning to fly a pit bull back from dinner in New York City. I'm too old to be doing that crap at night. And the bosses, um, He's with a high profile, I won't mention her name, Hollywood person now, and her daughters are high profile. And I, you know what, their demands just, it was a good time to retire for my company. Love the people, love the work, love the 20 years. They paid me great money, but it's time to move on. And I think we both agreed. Wow. Who's, from your perspective, the most famous person you had in your uh, helicopter or plane? Oh, gosh, I had them all, but from Strom Thurmond to Mike Schmidt and every, oh, yeah, guys like Pitbull. Oh, geez, name them. I, people ask me this all the time, and I can't think. Mick Jagger, uh, <laughs> after Live Aid, I, I, I flew all those folks over to the heliport from the, from Collins. I just feel Collins was when the one guy did Live Aid in Wembley and in Philly. Oh, well, yeah, I guess, yeah, I did fly him. I, and and uh, what's her name? The, the soul singer, the gal, the great one that lasted 100 years. What's her name? No, she, I can Tina Turner. Tina okay. Turner, I flew, but and I've flown more. I've, I think I play, flew President Ford. At one point, yeah. And I've flown a lot of people. There's a book in there, man. There's a oh, book. Yeah, there's a there. couple, but I have ADD and I can't <laughs> sit down and do. I got to get on some of these drugs that people have. <laughs> you need some drug for at least yeah. like a six-month period to get this all on paper, man. Right. Wow. Do us a favor and please do that. So a few more questions. So what is your personal definition of success? Having not thought about it previously, but I think... It's way different from everyone. Like my boss's definition probably would be that he's got uh, just got a 150 foot yacht. Maybe he'd want a 300 foot yacht. We got uh, had a small jet. Now he's got a great big jet. I think it's whatever you aspire to. It's reasonable. In other words, I just wanted to matter. I just wanted, I know you do a great job at what you do because I followed you to a certain degree. And I know people look up to you and respect you. To me, that's more important than ultimate financial. Now, a reward. We all want some financial reward because we have children and family that we want to do the best by. But but ultimate wealth was never it. It really succeeded and was looked up to when I was in the aviation business. My demise in that market was not because of me, and I'm always proud of that. It was just an arbitrary decision by some news director that started the ball rolling where I got out of the actual aviation business. But I was usually successful. I sent kids to Villanova, Bucknell, and Full Sail down in, in Florida, which are it's a great music school. They're very expensive schools. The kids lived well. They traveled abroad. So... 
just to be able to look at yourself in the mirror and say, I tried pretty hard and my military career was successful. I was never going to make general because I was too much of a wise guy, but and I didn't follow all the rules. But I think I had a successful military, I had a successful athletic career, military and business. And I, I look forward to a successful retirement. What's that look like for you? What's a successful retirement look like? I'm you know, on the board of directors down there at Sterling Helicopters. I, I actually you do still do a few test flights for them here and there, just local stuff. I just want to remain relatively relevant. I don't want to go back full time, which I could be a greeter in Walmart. Hello, ladies. It's nice to see you today. <laughs> I'm Casey. Yeah. Um, I, I would like to get back into expert witnessing uh, for aircraft incidents and accidents. I used to do that pretty much. And then I got so busy when I was working corporate for the past 18 years or so that I couldn't do any. I even gave up a lot of the movie stuff I did because we just got so busy. But just some consulting. That's fine. A little boat and go fishing. Yeah, simple. Uh, what values do you want to pass on to your kids? First of all, loyalty, more than anything. And, you know, I think my group has a built-in loyalty to family. It's ingrained in Italians anyway. That stick-together ability that we all have. I talk to each one of my kids still at least once a day, all awesome. three of them. And, and so loyalty is a big one. Perseverance, because you don't get anywhere without perseverance. In other words, just don't give up. And I think that even tops talent because you only have what you're given. You can develop talent, but basically there's a God-given limitation to what we can all do. You know, Brett Favre could throw a ball 60 yards. I can't. So we all have our mind probably was my attitude and my gift to gab. So cultivate whatever you have and everyone's different. Just whatever you can do it to your best and you'll succeed. Yep. I don't know if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. To totally. Look about what you've done. Look at the example, what you've developed. Because of what? Hard work. It just didn't all come naturally. I remember when you were shy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I remember when you were introverted. You certainly can't do that anymore. Accounting does that to you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But guess what? You were honest and you were hardworking. A lot of times that'll help. <laughs> Thank you. When you are at your best, what are you doing? Paying attention, concentrating, effort. There are three things that a lot of people don't do. <laughs> they don't pay attention to what the, the level the water is. They don't concentrate on what it means and how to interpret. Stick to it, Miss. You just got to, you just tenacity. That's it. And you could accomplish anything. How the hell did I get somebody to buy me a helicopter? My first contract. I talked them into it. Yeah. The courage and asking and being a good guy and, and character. And, uh, yeah. All, all, all that comes together. And grit. I think that the, the thing is that you mentioned about talent. Like we only, each of us have a limited amount of talent, but when you throw the grit in and the where you can develop skill with it, with your limited talent base, that that's where the secret for me. Oh, you can you can absolutely hone your skills. I, I did it in the helicopter till nobody could do anything any better than I could. I was crazy. <laughs> it's a good crazy. Two more questions. How about be, fire away? 
if you could go back and talk to the people at that table, that dinner table, when you were 10 years old, your parents, your family, what would you want to tell them? I would want to tell my dad what a wonderful influence and inspiration and example he was. This man worked all day for the United States Army. He was head of research and development for small arms, ammunition, and explosives for the United States Army. And he, two nights a week, drove home the Langhorn, went back to the New Falls Station, got on a train, and taught two nights at Drexel chemistry. And just to keep the home, to give us a little home in the suburbs, because the government paid Squata then. By the time he retired, he was doing well. But they weren't, the government wasn't paying much in those, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, believe me. I would thank him for his inspiration. He was truly the smartest and most kind man I ever knew. And my mom was just a gentle, wonderful soul. And I'd have to thank her for that. I used to come home from being out on a date in high school and all the other girls in my class in the crowd would be inside at the kitchen table with my mom, talking to my mom, telling them stuff that their moms wouldn't understand or listen to. And I just shake my head and walk in and go to bed. She was so I just have nothing but thanks for the two of them. They were big inspiration. That's awesome. One of the loves you and I have together are the Philadelphia Eagles. Uh, <sighs> worst Eagle moment ever see if we share it tampa bay oh playoff game jared <laughs> Vitas running down the field with the interception i Still won running. if i had anything sharp i would have slit my wrist right then the, my whole life flashed before me the worst now that's the worst in a few other worst ones but that was the worst it's the vet it's the last game for some perspective it's the very last game win or lose at veteran stadium they're blowing it up in a few months and it, it you could leave that stadium with the eagles going to the super bowl which they would i'm have ready won. to smash my fist through the computer right now just thinking about it I tell my wife, we were living, my wife, Dawn, and I were living in the city at the time. And you and I just, we, we were both at that game. And I believe you were just right up, you were maybe two sections above. Like we were, we were in the same view of the stadium. And I take the train home. Uh, we were living on Spruce Street at the time. I go in, she comes, looks at me, and she just goes, you and the Eagles are in a bad marriage. It's just, it's just <laughs> they keep disappointing that you're in a bad marriage. I don't know if this, what this says about me as a person. There have been funerals I've been at with family members that I wasn't as upset at that time. Oh my God. I, I can almost all the funerals. That I was. <laughs> this was, I've never this felt was so the Eagles. Since for a sporting event, it was horrendous. So we're in agreement on that. We are in total agreement. I think childhood, but like my early adulthood ended that night. Like it was another, like, yeah, like that yeah. was a, I turned the chapter. I mean, the Super McNabb throwing up at the Super Bowl wasn't good, but it, at least you could say we made it to the Super Bowl. Uh, that that game, the other two playoff losses in the NFC Championship were bad, but not like that. Yeah, that was a newfound of sports bath. Uh, we're on the there same page. Uh, last question: If you had to get a, a quote or a tattoo on your body, what would that quote say? Never in the course of human conflict have so few done so much for so many. Wow. That's Winston Churchill referring to the pilots that won the Battle of Britain against the Luftwaffe in 1940. England had no chance 
of surviving. They were going to be invaded. As soon as the Germans got complete air power and Britain had plenty of planes, but not enough pilots. They were getting shot down, fished out of the, the English Channel, brought back by boat, dried off and put in another airplane to go back and fly again. Never in the course of human conflict have so few done so much for so many. And it's so true. A few hundred pilots saved Western civilization as we know it. Well, the United States never would have gotten into the war, but Britain would have been overtaken, invaded by Germany. Who knows what, what would have happened? So that, that's why I'm, I love that quote. I love Winston Churchill as well. Absolutely. Never have so few done so much for so many. Yeah, yeah. All you have to do is to is Google the so few quote, boom, and it comes right up. Yeah. And and of course, when I went to see the Eagles in London with my significant other, my British buddy and his wife, you knew I went over there a couple of years ago, right? To watch the Jags. Yeah. We went to the Churchill Museum. Unbelievable. If you run a list of his quotes, you could you could quote all day. Andrew Roberts wrote one of the, the definitive biographies on him. And I'm in the middle of it. And I've been in the middle of it for about a year and it's phenomenal. He's one of the ultimate ballers, Churchill. There are certain people on this planet that are born and put here just for a particular moment. George Patton, Douglas MacArthur, Winston Churchill. Joe Chicarone. <laughs> that's, 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 uh, scratch that last name, please. Uh, You've done a great job, buddy. Yeah, you did a great job. But Mark, it's been an honor. Great to catch up. Thank you. I for hope your you time. got some stuff in here you can use. You have a book in you, and at some point you have to sit down and write it because uh, I think it would Adderall. Be I'm going to start taking Adderall next okay. month, <laughs> and I'm going to write it on the fucking beach. <laughs> All right. But th- right, dude, great to see you. Thank you so much. I wish you all the best. Let's stay. Yeah, and tell your wife she did a great job pretending that she doesn't see me very often <laughs> <laughs> when you're on trips. That was, she did a great job faking that. <laughs> <laughs> Adios, man. Awesome. Hey, man, you are the man. I appreciate you, buddy. Thank you. Chicone, thanks, man. Peace out. Joe. Stay in touch. Later, Peace bro. out, buddy. Hey, everyone. It's Joe. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed the episode. If you could, please give us a five-star rating on your podcast listening app, or better yet, share the episode with a friend. That really goes a long way of helping the podcast grow and connecting it with a bigger audience. Thanks so much. Talk soon.